Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Give us ears, O Lord, to hear what your Spirit would say through your Holy Word to us who are your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our great Lord has graciously, perfectly, deliberately revealed himself to us in his word. And there are many ways, if you think about all the ways that God has described himself in his word, there are many ways that he has sought to make himself known to us. So we think of some of those. He is our creator. He is our savior. He is our shepherd. He is our redeemer. He is our judge. He is our comforter. He is our wisdom, our king, our deliverer. He is light. He is love. He is our rock, our fortress, our shield, our defender, our refuge, and our strength. We might think of him in these and in many other ways. But as we think about who the Lord is and how he has revealed himself to us, Do you ever, or have you ever seen in God's word that God is a tailor? It's not something that we might normally think of. He is, in other words, a clothier, an outfitter, a garment maker. Being someone who makes clothing who sews cloth or garment skins together, that occupation is actually modeled after God. Do you know God to be a tailor? Have you ever praised him or thanked him that he is a tailor? How many songs do we sing about his skillful work in clothing people? Where do you see this description particularly about God? Well, you see it where we see many other descriptions about God right at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. So turn for a moment with me. Hold your finger there in 28 of Exodus. Genesis chapter 3 in particular. Genesis chapter 3 in particular. Genesis 3 tells of the historical event of the fall of mankind. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. We read about this 
serpent that comes to Eve, that whispers that question in her ear, did God actually say? Did he really say? Adam and Eve were tempted. They took the fruit and they ate the fruit. And Eve, longing for her eyes to be opened, longing for some kind of insight, when she took the fruit and ate it and gave some to her husband, they were given insight, but not the insight they were hoping for. Look at verse 7 of Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve received insight, and for the very first time, they knew that they were naked. And for the very first time, they saw their nakedness in a different light. They knew that there was something wrong with that, and that they needed to do something about it. Houston, we have a problem. And with this problem came a solution. A solution which did not alleviate the problem. A a solution that did not make the problem go away. In fact, a solution that only made the problem worse. How was the problem amplified? It was exacerbated by a man-made solution. So Adam and Eve saw that there was a problem. They were naked And they said, we can figure this out. We can fix it. We can take matters into our own hands and we can provide a solution to our problem. And so what does it say? They sewed fig leaves together and then look at these words. And made for themselves. These words are not merely words to move the story along. These are theological words, words that bear theological significance and weight. These words, and they made for themselves loincloths, are meant to lay heavy on our hearts like a punch to the gut that knocks the wind out of us so that we are left gasping for air. Why are these words so important? Because up to this point in the book of Genesis, only God has made So, let's look at this for a second. So far, only God has been the subject of that verb, made. So if you go back to Genesis 1, I'm going to go through some verses here. You can follow along. Genesis 1, 7, and God made. Genesis 1, 16, and God made. Genesis 1, 25, and God made. Genesis 1, 26, let us make man. Genesis 1, 31, and God saw everything that he had made. 2, 4. In that day, the Lord God made the heaven and the earth, the, the earth and the heavens. Genesis two nine, and out of the ground the Lord God made. Even Genesis three one, the Lord God made. So we hear it over and over again. God made and God made and God made and God made. And now there's a problem, and man decides, I'm going to make something for myself. What was God doing? God was making everything for His own glory. 
But now, they, Adam and Eve, who had just sinned against God and disobeyed his holy word, had the audacity to make for themselves. While everything that God made was to display his glory, the only thing man could make was something to try to cover up his shame. Oh, how desperately Adam and Eve wanted to be God, but all they could do was inadequately and sinfully try to mimic him, even to the point where they would try to infringe upon the Creator's right to make. It was God's right to make. Who did Adam and Eve think that they were, that they would take matters into their own hands and make for themselves? This would not work in God's economy. And we see here (laughs) in Genesis 2 and 3, this beautiful even storyline of the gospel. And it comes around this word, man and his wife, or Adam and his wife. So if you look at it here for a moment, Genesis 2, 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here is this beautiful gift of marriage that God has given to Adam and Eve. They were both naked, but they were not ashamed. But then what happens? Look at 3, 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, there are those words again, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. While the gift of marriage was there at the end of chapter 2, now we have come to see that marriage has been marred. As the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God in the garden. And what what did that lead to? Well, in Genesis 3.17, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat out of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it because the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken and for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Here now there was this inversion of the, the roles in marriage that had taken place and it brought judgment upon man and his wife. But then look at verse 21 of chapter 3 in Genesis And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The gift of marriage was given. The gift of marriage was marred. The rules for marriage were inverted. But the gift of marriage was ultimately restored by the Lord himself. Look at what the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife, Eve. When Adam and Eve made, they were making for themselves. It was a selfish making. It was a 
self-centered making. But when the Lord God made, it was a sacrificial and giving that he was doing for them. When Adam and Eve made, they were making loincloths, barely enough to cover their nakedness. But when the Lord clothed them, he clothed them fully. When Adam and Eve tried to make for themselves loincloths, they were using fig leaves and plant matter for the material. But in God's economy, plants would not do to cover the shame that was exposed because of their nakedness. So in an act of violence, a bloody sacrifice was made so animal skins could cover the guilt and shame of human beings. And by that act of violence came the sadness of death. But in that, there was also hope. Hope because it was God's grace and love and mercy that clothed our first parents. God clothing Adam and Eve is a reminder to them of their sinfulness. There are only two types of people in this world. There are those who would try to clothe themselves and dress themselves, try to cover up their own guilt and shame. But in so doing, their nakedness remains. Or there are those who are clothed by God and their guilt and their shame are removed so their nakedness is no longer exposed, but they forever remain clothed. It's the difference between those who are homeless and those who have found a home. The world unites around stripping people from their home, unites around celebrating people who are unclothed. But God does something vastly different. He clothes people and he gives them a home. Are we ever so busy making for ourselves loincloths that we neglect to see that it is insufficient to deal with our real problem? Are you parading around like the emperor who thought that he was clothed in elegance, who thought that there was some special fabric that only those who were truly special could see, only to have the deception pointed out by a small child in the crowd who said, the emperor has no clothes. How many people, metaphorically, aren't wearing any clothes? What you are wearing matters because your eternal destiny hangs upon it. And your eternal destiny is evidenced by how you are clothed or how you are not clothed. We are reading from Exodus 28 about how the Lord was clothing the priests, the priests who would serve in the tabernacle, the priests 
who would serve in the presence of the Lord. They could not just wear anything as they drew close to him. What they wore was a matter of life and death. It had great purpose and significance. And the things that they were clothed with, how the high priest was clothed, how the priests were clothed, spoke to the ministry that they had of representing the people before the Lord. And these priests and their clothing, and the great high priest and his clothing, were to point to the ministry of another, the ministry of a great high priest who would serve his people, who would care for his people, who would minister to his people. And our great high priest is none other than Jesus Christ. So as Exodus 28 describes about how the high priest is to be clothed, how does that point to our great high priest and his ministry to us? How does that encourage us even today that we do in fact have a great high priest who is ministering to us and his ministry has an impact upon our lives, has an impact about who we are and why we do what we do and why we live the way that we live. So two weeks ago we began looking at this. We saw that first point there in your bulletin if you want to follow along. That first point, our great high priest supports the people of God in the presence of God. We need a strong high priest and Jesus Christ is our strong high priest it is as if we have been placed upon his shoulders as if he is carrying us as if he is the one who makes it possible for us to even stand in God's presence Jesus is strong Jesus is kind Jesus has the strength to uphold you and carry you care for you. Number two, though, we move to our second point this morning. We'll camp out here on points two and three. Number two, our great high priest intercedes for the people of God in the presence of God. Our great high priest intercedes for the people of God in the presence of God. And as we are going through these points, really these are, are based on just a few verses so like verse 12, you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. That was point one. Now point two is coming from these verses 29 and 30. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the urim and the thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. It's not a word that we use much in our everyday language, intercede or the word intercession. When someone intercedes, they are acting on behalf of another who is in difficulty or in trouble. They are imposing themselves by pleading or petitioning the case of another so that grace and mercy might be granted to those who are in trouble and in need. 
It is a beautiful picture of what it means to show love and compassion to another. And here is the ministry of the high priest. He is to intercede on behalf of the people of God. The high priest is burying these people on his heart. These people who are in trouble, these people who are in need, these people who are weak, helpless. The high priest is burying them on his heart into the very presence of God. What is their difficulty, though? What is it that troubles them? It's their sin. They are a sinful people. They still disobeyed God. They still transgressed his law. But the high priest would come into the presence of God and he would plead the case of the people so that they might be forgiven before the almighty judge. And this is expressed in this piece of, piece of clothing known as the breast piece or the breast pouch of judgment. It was made from the same materials as the ephod would cover the front of the ephod. It was square in shape. It says it was a span. A span is about half of a cubit. So a cubit is roughly 18 inches long. A span would have been about 9 inches long and wide. So 9 inches by 9 inches was this pouch placed on the chest of the high priest. Some think it was a pouch because it was doubled over on one side. There were rings on this breast piece so that it could be attached to the ephod with blue lace. It was to be held in place so that it would not move. And what was in this breast pouch or what was on this breast piece? There were 12 precious stones, four rows of three stones each. Each is a different stone, and each stone bore a name of the sons of Israel. So the 12 tribes, each stone has a, had a different name of one of the tribes on it. it. Reminds us that God's people are his treasured possession, they are precious in his sight. It is these people who are represented by these stones that the high priest bears upon his heart as he goes into God's presence. He is going before the Lord to make intercession for the people, to make intercession concerning the judgment and law of God, to make intercession concerning the will of God. This is even the thought behind the Urim and the Thummim, that these were used to determine what was God's will, what did God want. And so as you think about it then, the high priest going into the Lord's presence with this desire upon his heart. Oh, may these people do your will. Oh, may these people follow your judgments and your laws. Oh, may they keep your statutes. May they make it their aim to please you. The high priest showing compassion and mercy and love to the people of God by bearing them on his heart while he knows their weaknesses, their infirmities, and their sins. Dear brother and sister, we have a better intercessor, our great high priest, Jesus. Look with me for a moment at 
Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 and 25. Hebrews 7, 23 and 25 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to listen to these words make intercession for them Jesus is alive forevermore never to die again And what is he doing with his resurrection life? He is at the Father's right hand, interceding for you and for me. Our names, as it were, are written on his heart. He is pleading our case before the Father. He is ministering to us through the ministry of intercession. Think of Christ's intercession, which happens for you daily, constantly, moment by moment. Christ is never absent in his ministry of intercession for you before God. Dear brother and sister, he is interceding for you even now. His intercession never fails. It is a strong and faithful intercession that never forgets. It is never an intercession that says, I'll pray for you, but forgets to pray. His intercession is always perfect. It's always exactly what is needed. We who are troubled, we who are afflicted, we who are weak, we who still sin, we find a compassionate and loving great high priest in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it was necessary for him to come to earth to be made like us except for the fact that he was without sin so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses he can intercede for us effectively because he knows our weaknesses experientially if you're in Hebrews turn back to Hebrews 4 verses 15 and 16 Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you struggling this morning to know if Christ cares for you? He does. Christ does care for you. His care and compassion is shown through His interceding for you before the Father. His care, compassion, mercy, and love are constant. And it provides you the ability to approach the throne of grace with confidence so that you can find help in your time of need. And would we see what Christ's ministry of intercession does for us 
It's not given to us so that we can simply revel in and glory in Christ's ministry to us. No, it's a ministry given to us that should move us out to others. Christ's ministry of intercession is meant to lead to us interceding for one another and even interceding on behalf of others who do not know Christ. What do you know of Christ's ministry of intercession if you are unwilling to intercede on the behalf of others? We ever say, yes, I want Christ's ministry of intercession in my life. Are you willing to minister to others by interceding for them, by praying for them, by diligently getting on your knees before God the Father and say, I'm interceding for my brother or for my sister. I know their weaknesses. I know they're struggling. I want to show compassion and love for them. And how too easily are we kept from that? I'm busy right now. I don't have time. Other things are going on in my life. I'm being distracted by these other things. <laughs> Would you want a Savior that's too easily distracted from interceding for you? Let us not be too easily distracted. <laughs> that it would keep us from interceding for other people, praying for them, caring for them. Pray for those believers that you know, that they would be strengthened in their faith. Pray for people to come to Christ. Pray for His love to control this church. Pray for Him to do far more abundantly than we can ask or even think in the lives of those who you think it's impossible for God to save them. Your great high priest intercedes for you. Will you not intercede for others? Because our great high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Yet, he is without sin. Reminds me of a story a little boy walking along the road sees a sign out in a house on the street where he's walking says puppies for sale. He likes puppies. So he decides to go knock on the door. As the door opens, an old man stands there looking down at this little boy and the boy says, Sir, if I could, I'd, I'd like to see the puppies that are for sale. The old man ushers the boy into the house and out into the garage where the puppies are kept. And In the moment that the door of the garage opens and the little boy walks through, there's a dog pile of fur and saliva. And there is the, the boy sits on the ground with the puppies all around him and 
the old man just stands back with a smile on his face watching the puppies and the boy play with one another. After some time, the little boy comes to the old man. He says to the old man, Sir, I would like to purchase that puppy right there. The smile that was on the old man's face turns solemn. And he says to the young boy, Son, you don't want this puppy. You see, this puppy, he's the runt of the litter. And he has a limp in his leg. He will never run. He will never walk the right way. Son, you don't want this puppy. You want another puppy. Pick another one. The little boy says, no, that's the puppy that I want. And he lifts up his pant leg and shows to the old man his prosthetic leg. He says, I know the kind of love that that puppy needs. The face that had turned solemn turns again to a grin. And the old man says, son, you take that puppy home and you love that puppy. It won't cost you anything. That little boy could sympathize with the weaknesses of that puppy. Dear brother and sister, your Savior sympathizes with your weaknesses. And He loves you. He is interceding for you. He will care for you. Number two, number three. Number three. Two for this morning, but three altogether. Our great high priest bears the guilt of the people of God in the presence of God. Our great high priest bears the guilt of the people of God in the presence of God. Back in Exodus 28, we move to the last article of clothing that we're going to highlight this morning. It's the turban. It's the turban that's worn on the head of the high priest. And here it's not so much the turban that is in view, but the plate or the rosette of pure gold that is placed on the front of the turban. Here on the forehead of the great high priest is to be this golden plate that's engraved on this golden plate, the words, holy to the Lord, or holy to Yahweh, is a reminder that God is holy. Not only is He holy, but He is holy, holy, holy. And with the inscription, holiness to the Lord, we are confronted with the truth of sinful man. Only the one who is holy can enter into the presence of the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The people's sinfulness is what keeps them out of God's holy presence. They are unfit to approach God, but the high priest wears this on his head to bear the people's guilt. Isn't that what we saw back in Exodus 28? Verse 38, it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. The people had incurred guilt because they had transgressed the holiness of the Lord. 
And so now Aaron was going to bear that guilt before Yahweh. Aaron, however, was not perfect. He had his own sin. He had incurred his own guilt. But now look back at Hebrews 7 again. Hebrews 7. Now verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. For the high priest to go in and to make atonement for the sin of the people, he first would have to make atonement for his own sin. And so what do we need? We need a great high priest who is completely perfect and spotless and sinless and unstained, and innocent. And that is our high priest, Jesus Christ. He could bear our guilt and our sin because he is the perfect son of God. And the most beautiful and amazing thing happens. Christ bears our sin and guilt and shame upon himself while he gives us his holiness and his righteousness. He gives us these so we can be accepted by God. We are accepted by Yahweh on the merits of Christ, not our own merits. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what happens at salvation. Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account We were those who were spiritually bankrupt. We had nothing. Triple zeros, that's what was in our account. But Christ's righteousness was given to us and all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our shame went upon Christ where he bore it on the cross in our place so that he could remove it from us. And now we are those who are clothed with the robes of Christ's righteousness. We are now clothed in the garments of salvation that God gives to all who call upon him in faith and repentance. What kind of clothes are you wearing? I want us to look at two vignettes, two little word pictures here as we close our time together. First, the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. You have to go back to the end of the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Second to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah, though, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this 
a brand plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. What a beautiful picture. Here you have the angel of the Lord, closely related to the Lord himself, standing there, acting, speaking. This is the ministry of the pre-incarnate Christ on display for all to see. And what happens here is a snapshot of what Christ does in saving sinners. There's a potential for a dispute. Satan is standing there ready to accuse. He is the great accuser. But what does the Lord do? I rebuke you, O Satan. Shut your mouth. You have nothing to say here. You can't accuse this man, my high priest. And that's what Satan was ready to do. But on what grounds was Satan going to accuse Joshua, the high priest? Well, Joshua was wearing filthy garments. He is not fit to go into your presence. He is not fit to make atonement for the people. And oh, what a predicament. Because if Joshua had these filthy garments, he could not go into the presence of God. He could not make atonement for the people. And so the people are lost and hopeless. But what does the Lord do? He removes his filthy garments. He takes away his sin. And he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just take away the filthy garments and the sin. Now and then it's like, well, great, now what do I have to wear? No, what does he do? He clothes him again with pure vestments. Again, just like the garden, it is the Lord who clothed him. If Joshua can't go into the presence of God, how will atonement be made? How will the people's problem be solved? It won't. It was a dire and desperate situation. Filthy garments are not a small problem. Your sin is not a small problem. It separates you from God. The Hebrew here is even more explicit. These are not merely filthy garments. They are garments that are covered in excrement. Go, take your clothes and dunk them in a porta potty and then put them back on. And now you're starting to scratch the surface of just how odious and vile your sin is before the Lord. We need the Lord to clothe us with His righteousness. We need our filthy rags removed and replaced with garments of salvation. And this is the compassion, and this is the love, and this is the grace that the Lord provides to those who call upon Him. But one other vignette in Matthew chapter 21, verses 11 through 14. Matthew 21, 11 through 14. I'm sorry, Matthew 22, 11 through 14. Here Jesus tells a parable of a wedding feast. 
And there are people who would not come to the wedding feast. And so they go out and they're finding anyone that they can to invite to this wedding feast to bring them in. Verse 10 of Matthew 22, And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they had found, both bad and good. So the wedding feast hall, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But then the king comes back. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. What's the problem? Here was a man in the wedding feast, but he was a pretender. He didn't have the wedding garments. And in fact, the king even kind of gives him a little dig. Friend, friend, you are pretending to be a friend. You are in here acting like a friend, but you are no friend because you do not have a wedding garment, because you are not clothed the way that you are supposed to be clothed. You can't sneak into the wedding feast pretending to be the king's when you aren't. You can't pretend to be clothed with robes of righteousness because in the end, the Lord will know. And if you persist in pretending, you will end, your end will be the same as this pretender. And so it's a call for repentance. Are you one who is clothed with Christ's righteousness? Are you wearing those wedding garments that you are His? Or are you trying to clothe yourself? Those who put their faith and trust in Christ are declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word which has come to us today. We pray that we would learn, we would take it in, we would digest it, and we would be transformed by it. Oh Lord, how we need you to clothe us. Forgive us for the ways that we might try to clothe ourselves. Forgive us for the times that we spend trying to make ourselves our own home instead of resting and knowing that you have given us a home in Christ and that we have an eternal home in the heavens that's not made with hands but whose builder and designer is God. And we realize, Father, the only way that we can be clothed is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His blood was shed. His body was buried so that we could be forgiven. He rose again from the dead declaring that His work of atonement was completely sufficient to save to the uttermost 
those in need of saving. That's us. That's each and every one of us here. We are those who are in need of saving. We are those in need of rescue. We are those who once were in filthy rags for whom you removed our filthy rags and gave us pure vestments, robes of righteousness. Father, if there's anyone here today who would realize they have been trying for so long to clothe themselves, the day that would be the day that they come to Christ. They run to Him, put their faith and trust in Him, asking Him to remove their filthy rags and to clothe them. For if they believe in their heart, that you raised Christ from the dead, and if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. They will be clothed. We pray that you would do this work. In Jesus' name, amen.